Heavenly Father, you've been so gracious to us over the past few weeks of opening the parable of the Good Samaritan and showing us things deep inside this story that Christ told that your Holy Spirit can draw out and press into our hearts and our souls so that we are transformed and we love and care for the people that you've put around us, sovereignly guided into our, our path in the love that Christ loved us with the same love that he loved us as it's poured into our hearts, we can love people around us. Father, I pray that this morning as we look at another dimension of this great reality that you would graciously open my heart and my friends' hearts here today to see and to embrace a treasure of Christ that is ours in Christ Jesus. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please grab that and open to Luke 10, verse 30. Like I said, for the last uh, month or so, we've been exploring the Good Samaritan parable, and we've been in this series we we're calling Love Thy Neighbor, and our goal is really in this series to understand what Christian love is. What does it mean to love as a Christian, to love as Jesus Christ? And um, this parable has been deep for me. It's been rich. It presses into the reality of Christian love from just about every angle. The last two weeks, we looked at the Samaritan himself, this character who Jesus presents in the parable. And Jacob, uh, so two weeks ago, looked at the concept of loving your enemies because we know that uh, the Jews at that time and the Samaritans were enemies. There was animosity between them. Um, and then last week we looked at love the foreigner, loving foreigners, because ironically the only people, the only person in this story that actually shows the love of Christ is a foreigner. And Timothy showed God's heart for the foreigner last week is connected to the fact that in Jesus Christ we are all exiles, we are all foreigners, we're not of this world, and just like Jesus Christ who is the ultimate Good Samaritan and who loved us to the point of giving his life on the cross um, so that we could be in the family of God. So in the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at other dimensions of the Good Samaritan, not namely in who he is, but in what he does. How does he show love and compassion with such an economy of language? This parable is not long. I was talking to JD about this a few days ago. It's not a long parable. Yet there is stunning detail here, and uh, let's look uh, closer at it. Starting with verse 30, we're going to go one more time here again through the parable. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where this wounded man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day... He took out two denarii 
And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns to the lawyer who posed the original question and asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the Good Samaritan parable, you guys have become very familiar with it. We've got a few weeks left, and then we're going to go into the book of Jonah, God willing. Um, But uh, this parable is very short, very to the point, and yet in just a few words, Jesus depicts this remarkable act of love, like I said, in shocking detail. We've already described why it's so incredible because of who this man was. This man was not a cherished and loved person in Jerusalem. He was hated and despised. He was an outsider. He was a foreigner. He was not part of this class of people. And yet, remarkably, he is the one who loves this beaten and broken man who is half dead on the side of the road. And so I want to zero in really on one verse today, very simple, and that's verse 33. And what I want to do is I want to look at the first major sacrifice, the critical key sacrifice that this Samaritan makes to save this wounded man who is teetering on the brink of death. What's the first sacrifice he makes? Jesus tells us in verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where the wounded man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And then it says, he went to him. He went to him. So let's set the stage here. A man has been beaten within an inch of his life. He's left on the side of the road and a priest approaches and won't go near him. Neither will the Levite. Both of these men serve at God's temple. If anyone should help these men, It should be these two who are effectively representing the people of Israel before God. And yet Jesus says, both of them pass by on the other side. And then we come to this verse, verse 33, and we read about this Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to the same place, saw the same wounded man, and yet he had compassion on this person. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to have compassion? All of you know and are familiar with the feeling. The Greek here is splonk nizomai. And what it means is to feel sympathy, to feel pity for someone. It is a, a kind of yearning in your bowels to help or to mend. And I think, like I said, we've all felt something like that before. It's almost, when I'm looking up that word, it's almost surprising to me how even just talking about that yearning of compassion brings to mind times when I've actually felt that about someone, like a a wrenching in the deepest parts of your being. That's what the man felt. The Samaritan felt compassion. Before he brings aid to him, there is a feeling of compassion that rises up in his heart. He doesn't manufacture this. This is important. He doesn't create it. He doesn't conjure it up. It happens in his heart. It arises on its own. 
And it is what constrains him and drives him to do what he does next, which is he goes to him. He goes to the wounded man. And the reason this is so important is that he didn't need to. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to go to this man. We know that he had somewhere else to be because in verse 35, he leaves the man in the end and gives the innkeeper basically a blank check. He tells him, take care of him and whatever you spend, whatever you spend, I will repay you. So he had to be somewhere else. He had to be somewhere else. So this act of compassion isn't free in just going, in just spending time. In fact, it cost him as soon as he changes the direction of his feet. It cost him something. His schedule is now being compromised, whatever that was. And, you know, the priest and the Levite know this because whatever they had to do, whatever they were going towards, whatever their, their objective was, whatever was governing their day, when compared to a, saving a man who was dying, they said, that's too great a cost. That's too great a cost. I can't do it because my obligations, my schedule, my day, helping this person, loving my neighbor is just too costly to do right now. That's the, that's the fundamental shift that had to happen for them to keep staying on the road and passing by on the other side. So they, they don't. They say, I won't. And my schedule is going to remain intact. My day is not going to be ruined by this man. Um, and they refuse to love. And so this man, he is hanging on the verge of death. And then comes this Samaritan who has a place to be, according to verse 35, and he stops everything. And he loves this person. I mean, lavishly loves this man who is a perfect stranger, as far as we can tell. And in doing this, through the parable, Jesus reveals to us something about our hearts. He reveals an idol that we all have as human beings. And when I, mean, when I say idol, I don't mean a, a wooden statue that we put on the mantle. I mean something that we treasure above trusting and loving God. Because I think we've all felt the sting of compassion before. We felt that feeling arise in our hearts and our souls. And we've also said to that feeling, I just don't have time to deal with this. I just don't have time for this. And we have, through omission or through action, passed by on the other side of the road. And maybe the man wasn't dying. Maybe he wasn't in the middle of like a barren wasteland. But God gave us an opportunity in a paper falling Okay, sorry. <laughs> I don't want to put it up there and mess you up later. Um, and and uh, we passed by the other side. So we had things to do. We had a schedule to keep. And so we just didn't love in that moment. We didn't work out of the compassion that we had. And we passed by on the other side of the road, just like the Levite, just like the priest. There wasn't time for mercy. We had important things to do. This is this is mainly what I mean by schedule. I don't mean uh, a, a calendar with things plotted out. I mean important things that we had in our schedule that we had to do 
Maybe they were family things. Maybe they were work-related. Maybe they were good and necessary things, but when push came to shove, we just didn't have time for mercy. We didn't have time to love on that day, and we passed by on the other side. So this parable reveals the idolatry of schedule. It reveals the idolatry of good things, moral things, right things, things that are appropriate to make time for. So let me, let me give you a caveat at the beginning. Like, uh, we have lives that are filled with things. Everybody here has that. Um, and most of these things are good and right things. They are good things, family, work, recreation. And so whatever I say today, I want to make sure this is very clear. Please know that I'm not saying we should ignore those things. Nor am I saying that we should not make room for them on our schedule, but rather that we should be willing to interrupt them, to love other people. And the reason that I'm, I'm saying that is because this is the kind of love that we are called to in Christ Jesus to have, a kind of love that the Samaritan exhibits here, the love of Christ, Christian love. And we know this because when we look at the person we follow, Christ, and we look at his ministry, we see a ministry that was constantly filled with interruptions. We see a ministry that was constantly, we see a a person who was constantly being interrupted by other people's needs pressing in on him, and he constantly loved in response. If anybody in the world had a more important schedule to keep, it was the Son of God, Christ. And yet his ministry from front to back is filled to the brim with interruptions. Nothing Jesus was ever doing was too important for him to refuse to love other people. Nothing. Jesus was always ready and willing to stop rather than to pass by on the other side, to actually love someone who was in need, where they were at. So I'm gonna list off just a few examples in Luke where he's interrupted, just in Luke. I'm not gonna go to the rest of the gospels. I'm gonna go to Luke, just four of these. Luke 5, 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's an interruption. Luke 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus stepped out on land, he's not even out of the boat yet. There met a man from the city who had demons. Luke 17, 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Luke 18.35, as Jesus drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside and begging. And hearing the crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So in all these situations and many others recorded 
in the gospel, and no doubt multitudes that go unrecorded. Jesus is interrupted, and his response is love. His response is to love that person in need. It's astonishing, actually, when you just read through the gospels, how much of the narrative, how much of the papers, the actual text, like the narrative, how much of that is simply from an interruption. Someone crashing into Jesus's day. And in each of them, Jesus does not ignore. He does not bypass. He does not pass by on the other side. He engages the need right in front of him. Though if anyone had a right to decline and say, I've got other things that are actually more important, it was Christ Jesus. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He loves. He responds in love. He's ready to stop doing whatever he's doing such that when we survey his entire life, we're kind of like, was this like part of his plan to just be interrupted all the time? Which should be, beg the sobering question, do our own lives look like this? Do they look like this? Is this what our lives look like? Is this what my life looks like? Or is it different? And all of us wrestle with this question, um, but what I would like to do is I'd like to wrestle with it as we look at a specific text, Luke 8, um, verse 40. So if you want to turn there now, Luke 8 is interesting because in one scene, Jesus is faced with multiple interruptions, almost non-stop, like a staccato of interruptions, one after another after another. And it is amazing how he responds to each one of them in turn and how he loves inside each of those interruptions. And my prayer is that by looking at this scene, by by asking God to to pull the reality that's in this passage into our hearts, that we would see a through line from how Jesus describes Christian love in the Good Samaritan through the life of Christ and into our own lives. And we would answer the question, what does it look like? What does it look like for me to stop whatever I'm doing and to love that person who needs to be loved in that moment? What would it look like for me to be so captured by the love of Christ, so dominated by his love that my schedule is never an impediment or a barrier to loving people? So let's look at this passage together. Luke 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So Jesus is returning to Galilee from the other side of the lake where he just casted out demons from the man of Gerasenes that we read about earlier, just a few seconds ago. And uh, as he gets off the boat here, here's another interruption. As soon as he gets out of the boat, he's met by this man, Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. He's actually a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus discovers that this man's 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, is on the verge of death. She's going to die. 
And so Jairus falls at Jesus' feet. Some of you guys are parents. And uh, you know what it's like to have your kid get sick. And it's just, it's horrible because you can't do anything about it. When I, when I read this, I tried to conceive of where Jairus' heart and mind were if he knows his daughter's going to die. He falls at Jesus' feet, imploring and pleading for him to come to his house. This wasn't part of Jesus' schedule. This wasn't part of a plan. It's an interruption. Yet he stops and he has compassion, just like the Samaritan, and he goes with Jairus to heal this girl. That's what verse 42 says. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, could heal the girl on the spot. I mean, he's the son of God. He could, she's healed. But he's willing to stop everything in order to physically go with Jairus to this house and heal his daughter in person stopping everything. He could have done it just there, but he stops and he goes. Verse 42 continues. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, around the same time that this girl is born. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood was ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down, just like Jairus before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So in the middle of responding to an interruption, He's interrupted again. This time it's different. Rather than someone coming up to him and asking him to help them, this woman with a blood disease simply reaches out, touches the, the fringe of Jesus' garment, and instantly she is restored. And she was, her faith was reaching out towards Jesus, initiating this healing. Jesus didn't need to stop here. He could have just, think about it, he could have just kept on going. She's been healed. It's done. He could have kept on going, but he doesn't. And he definitely has something important to do. He's going to save this little girl from dying. He doesn't. He stops and he engages this woman. He loves her. He responds to her physical brokenness and the healing she's just received with love. He's not in such a hurry that he can't love her. And yet this leads to another interruption, verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, presumably to the woman, 
someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. It says, while he was speaking. So literally, he is in mid-sentence. You don't get more interruptible than that. That is mid-sentence. He's talking when someone arrives and tells Jairus it's too late. It's too late. She's gone. And we can't get her back. And you feel the weight of that. It's cold and scary for Jairus. What's going through his head? So close. So close. You also get a sense of the understanding, like the universal understanding for the people who encountered Jesus and knew what he was capable of, of the importance of Jesus's own schedule, even as it's perceived by people around him. Think about what they say. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. That's cold. (laughs) Man's daughter just died. But they recognize who Jesus is. Everybody wants time with Jesus. Everybody needs something from Jesus. Everybody needs to be healed by Jesus. They know it's not convenient. None of these situations are convenient for him. And so they're telling him, let's not trouble him anymore. Let's just go back home. Now that the little girl is gone, let's leave Jesus alone. And yet Jesus hears this statement And I believe he looks into Jairus' eyes and says, do not fear. Only believe. And he is willing to sideline everything, everything to do this. He's not bothered. He's not impatient. He's not worried about anything that he needs to do. This girl comes first. And he desires that Jairus would believe him. And so he's willing to stop his schedule and follow this thread all the way to the end. And verse 52 tells us how it ends. As Jesus approaches the house, it says, And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, Arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her, given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So they arrive at the house. Jesus puts everyone else, except, except for Peter, James, and John, and the girl's parents. And he finds these people weeping outside, mourning, rightfully so. And he tells them, don't weep. Don't weep anymore. She's not dead. She is only sleeping. Now, what's fascinating is their response. Like, I looked at the response. I was like, that is not an appropriate way to act at this moment, to laugh at him. 
heartless. But why are they laughing? The reason they're laughing is because she really is dead. There's no bringing her back. She's gone. She's not sleeping. She is physically dead. And we see this according to verse 53. So what Jesus is saying is preposterous. It is, it is a false hope. It's a lie. Jairus should not believe what Jesus is saying. It's one thing to heal someone who is sick. It is another thing entirely to take someone who is very dead and to make them alive. But there's one more interruption in this story. And it's the interruption that Jesus is actually going to do. He will interrupt this girl's death. And he's going to restore life to her. Not just from sickness to health, but from death to life. And so he takes her by the hand, this little cold hand. And he says, child, arise. In the Gospel of Mark, it's uh, Talitha Kum, which is in Aramaic, it means little girl. I say to you, arise. And immediately her spirit is restored to her body and she is alive. Now when we read this story or when we consider the kind of love that the Good Samaritan shows, stopping everything to love a stranger in need, how do we as Christians process that? How do we understand it? How do we embrace that? What are the realities that are in Jesus's life that are at play here that we can, we can see and observe and say that I want that in my life. I want to be like that. Jesus was never bound by his schedule, like we've said. Even if it meant ignoring uh, something that he needed to do, he would stop and show love. He would never ignore someone who needed help. He would love them where they were. And so what was it about him? What were the things, the dimensions to his character, especially in Luke 8, as we zero in on this text, what was it about him? What is it about the Good Samaritan that we should as Christians desire into our lives? And I've got three points. I never do points, so sorry. <laughs> but I'm doing them now. So if you're a note taker, then here you go. Uh, number one, here they are. And I want to zero in on them. I really want us to personalize these. Ask them of yourselves. Ask, is this me? And if it's not, how can it be me? How can I be this? Number one, Jesus was not driven by his schedule. He was driven by love. His schedule, his plans, his mission in the moment was not dominated by things he had to do. It was not dominated by friends. It was not dominated by family. It was not dominated by rest or recreation. It was dominated by whatever he needed to love in the moment, whoever he needed to love in the moment. Now, it doesn't mean at all that we neglect those areas, like our family. We do not neglect our family. We do not neglect the work we have. And rest and recreation are not bad things. But what does it mean that Jesus, what it does mean is that Jesus never allowed those things, though they are good, and though they have a place in our lives, to choke out acts of mercy. He never allowed them to do that. He made sure that his life had the freedom so that he could stop and say, I'm going to love that person 
who needs me right now. And I think we often, I do, fill my life with things that are good, schedules that have all these different good things. Some of them are serving people. Some of them are caring for people. And yet at the end of the day, there is zero breathing room to in the moment love like Christ. We've got work, family, recreation. We've got these layers of things that are piled in. But when people with needs enter our lives, our main resistance to them isn't like blatant disregard. We're not like, yeah. It's not willful negligence. Our main resistance is that we've got stuff to do. I'm sorry, I wish I could help. There's things to do that we got to schedule. Maybe we're crunching at work. We got a product to ship. Maybe our kids have soccer practice or football practice or maybe music lessons or our, maybe we're going into the mountains. Maybe we're, we're going hiking. Whatever it might be, those are all good and glorious things. But if they push out Christian love from our lives, they, they can become bad things. There's nothing bad about them in and of themselves unless they rob us of the ability to love our neighbor. If they do that, then they've taken the place of an idol. They've removed our affection with Christ and replaced it with something else. And the Christian should be dominated by the love of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We are controlled, we are constrained by the love of Christ, not by a busy schedule, especially when our world is filled to the brim with brokenness and need everywhere. So that's number one. Number two is this. Jesus always made time for those who needed him. Always. This isn't exactly like the first one. The first one's about creating space for it. The second one is recognizing that I'm going to make time even if there isn't time. He was never too busy. He would stop his plans dead in their tracks if he needed to. He does it with Jairus in this story. Getting off the boat, Jairus comes to him. He stops whatever he's doing and goes with her goes with him to see his daughter. Then the woman with the blood disease. And then when he hears hears that the girl has died, he makes time still. He doesn't stop. He doesn't heal her on the spot. He goes to the house. He refuses to leave. He refuses to allow his plans and his schedule to prevent him from being merciful and loving, even if it came at a sacrifice, a great sacrifice to himself. So is this us? Like, is this you? This is... Uh, this is, like I said, I struggle with this one this week in particular, ironically, <laughs> as I'm preparing the sermon. Um, my wife and kids are still in Orlando. And what that means for me is that I can do more things because they're not here. And it's, they're good things. They're good things, serving people, loving, caring for people. But when there's no space and I refuse to stop and talk to the man on the side of the road with a sign because I got to go to something I'm doing. That's wrong. Even if it's a good thing, that's wrong. And that way of thinking of having a schedule like that is completely foreign to Jesus. I mean, look at his ministry. He stopped on a dime and loved at a moment's notice, even if plans had to be radically changed. And I may be in my sort of natural thinking tempted to push against that and say, well, I mean, Jesus didn't have my schedule. Let's be honest. And just for real, like Jesus didn't have a nine to five job. Jesus, 
you know, didn't have a regular church he was pastoring. He was pastoring the whole world in some way, but he didn't have a regular church. I mean, he, he, he didn't have all of the ins and outs that I have. I mean, he, he didn't have two kids and a wife. Like, there's obligations on my life. And I may be tempted to push against that and say, he didn't have my schedule. But I think the, the statement the way we should respond, the question we should ask when we, we tend to push against that and say, well, his life was different than mine, is why is that the case? Why is there such an enormous delta between my life and Jesus's? And I'm not talking about people or persons or obligations. I'm talking about a disposition to love. If Christ could stop and love in a moment, then I should be able to as well. Bottom line. Which leads to the final point, number three, and this is the most glorious of the three. Jesus never loved halfway. Not once in his life did he ever love halfway. Think about the scene in Luke 8. He doesn't stop with Jairus' daughter until she is fully healed, alive. Even after she's dead, he is still fighting for her to be alive and stays all the way to the end. He didn't leave Jairus' house, and Jairus and his wife were confused about whether or not Jesus loves. They knew. And this woman, for example, he doesn't leave this woman with the disease. I mean, he could have just booked it. He didn't need to be around. She's healed already. She knows that she's healed, but he doesn't leave until he has shown her love. And her disease made her ceremonially unclean. She was not supposed to be touching people. That was forbidden. Instead of despising her or even ignoring her and just going, he loves her in the middle of her brokenness. He doesn't walk away. Think about this. Jesus loved her until she knew how much she was loved. Let me say that again. He wasn't content for there to be any questions about it. He wasn't content for there to be any questions about his love. And here's the thing that's amazing about the Christian. This is exactly how he loved you in the cross. He refuses to leave any question about whether or not he loves you or the extent of his love. He gives himself so completely, so totally, that we know, we know without any doubt that he loves us. This is how great his love really is. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are loved this way. You are his. You belong to him. He purchased you. That's what the cross means it is the love of God, a God who made time for us, didn't ignore us, didn't pass by on the other side, even when we least deserved it, and refused to love us halfway, but gave himself totally to love us all the way. That's what Galatians 2 tells us. Paul says, Christ Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, himself not just part of his day, all of himself. That's what death is. When you give yourself in death, you are giving all of yourself. There's nothing left. How glorious 
is our Savior in Christ for him to do that. How amazing is he who came to us in the cross when we were dead in our own sin and in our own rebellion and stopped our death, interrupted our death, and made us alive. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. He came to us in love and died while we were in our greatest need, and now he's interrupted us, not only in our sin, not only in our selfishness and in our idolatry of of potentially good things, but he's interrupted us in order that we might be healed so that we can love the same way he loves, the same way. So in a few moments, we're gonna be taking communion, which is our celebration. It's our, it's our act of memorializing and worshiping Christ for this great act of love in the cross where Jesus did not love halfway, but he gave his, his whole life and is now inviting us into this same love. So Jesus died not only to redeem us from the just wrath of God, he did that. He died not only to secure for us forgiveness and eternal life, but he died that we might be free from the idolatry even of good things in our lives. That we would be free from the kind of schedule that we are all so prone to have, but that chokes out every ounce of mercy and love that God desires to show the world through us, through us. Christians were made to be interrupted. We were designed by God to be interrupted. Christ interrupted our spiritual death so that we could be interrupted in order to show that same love to the world. It's how we are fine-tuned. We are made to be like Christ. And so as we take communion um, and, how we re- and as we reflect on the radical love of Christ Jesus in the cross, what I would ask for you to do with me, with me, because I know that I'm the chief sinner in this regard, I would ask that you, with me, in your hearts, confess to God the ways in which, and the Spirit will bring some to your mind, perhaps, you have passed by on the other side of the road because of a schedule, because of a good reason, and failed with me to love like this, and then that you would plead. This is only going to happen if God moves here. That you would plead from God, that he would be able to provide you with every desire, every capacity, every passion necessary for us to be willing to simply be interrupted. Be willing to be interrupted. Be willing to forsake a schedule filled with good things in order to love like Christ in the moment. The cross isn't just a statement of God's love. It is that. It is also a picture of the love that we are called as Christians to display every day. And the cross, this is the glorious thing about the cross for us, Christians who are living their lives, still has something to say. When you receive the gospel, it didn't silence the cross. The cross still has something to say about about those God has sovereignly brought into your life. It still has love to show. People who may not fit into your schedule, who may not be part of your plan, still need to be loved just like Christ loved us. And our job as 
followers of Jesus Christ is to be interrupted like the Good Samaritan and like Jesus. And so let's ask God to do this great thing in us. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. And your son stands glorious before us in not only the parable of the Good Samaritan, which he is personifying in every breath that he walked on this planet, but with his constant display of love and compassion for people. No one who deserved it. He loved. And as we take communion, Father, the elements, I pray that you would so compel us to see the glory of that act on the cross that we would be transformed. That we would no longer feel bound to schedules, bound to good things, but we would be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stop right now because nothing is more important right now than for me to meet that need. That we would see your fingerprints over our lives calling us to be sacrificial. Calling us to maybe, maybe not focus exclusively on friendships or focus exclusively on family or focus exclusively on other things, but to take those things in our lives and focus them on whatever it is that you need me to do, Father, right now. How can I love right now? And that we would be examples to our children, to those around us, of Christ. Father, I ask that you would do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Convict us of areas where we haven't done this and compel us as we leave this place to do it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.